Dear friend, it's so good to be back. You may be wondering why there was no podcast episode last week. Well, I've been down and out with the flu. But on the positive side, I was able to recharge my social media batteries and I'm buzzing with new ideas. So let's get into today's episode. If you're a product leader or entrepreneur looking for some inspiration to be able to get your customers to connect with your products and services at a human level, then stay tuned for this episode. Today, I'm joined by Steve Malter, who has delivered more than 20,000 on-stage and on-camera presentations to over 2.5 million audience members for global brands such as Cisco, Panasonic, Fujifilm, Siemens, and many more. He is the author of the book titled, Nothing Gets Sold Until the Story Gets Told, Corporate Storytelling for Career Success and Value-Driven Marketing. Steve is a professional member of the National Speakers Association, avid foodie, world traveler, happy husband, and lucky dad to two amazing daughters. From the city of Beaky Blinders, Birmingham, England, I would like to introduce you to Paddy Dandar. As the world becomes more automated and the robots take over, it's imperative that we build the right human skills for the future. So pull up a chair, grab a smoser or two, and make yourself very uncomfortable. So Steve, what superpower would you like to bring to this particular episode? Oh, all right, Patty, here's the superpower that I would love to bring, what I call the keys to the corporate storytelling kingdom, which is the idea that we can take any topic that we are passionate about, whatever it is that we believe in deeply. So in this case, if we're talking technology, how do I take technology and humanize it? How do I bring what I am passionate about to other people to inspire passion in them? And the best way that we can do that is through the superpower of human to human communication, as opposed to corporation to human communication. Rather than talk about my product, my service, my solution, pitch me. Instead, how do we talk about others to bring meaning and value to their lives through our topic? And especially in the technology sphere, if we can make that happen, we're golden. We're in. We have those keys to the corporate storytelling kingdom. Nice. I love that. Because I do think a lot of companies struggle with that. They assume that just because their product's really good, people are going to buy it. And they don't really explain the why behind it. So I like that. And uh, Absolutely. I, I always like to say that, that until people understand why they should pay attention to you, they won't. They're not going to do it. They have to understand who you are as an individual and what drives you, what motivates you within your business model, why you believe that you create true differentiation or true value for others. And once they do, they trust you. They respect you, they find you credible, and now they become receptive to your core business message. Speak to them as people first, wallets second. So let's put your theory to the test. Talking about why, you and I were talking about where we're from, and you mentioned you're from Chicago. So why should people come to Chicago? Sell it to us, Steve. Oh my goodness. All right, I'm going to go way out on a limb. Boy, you're going to get a lot of mail about this one. I believe Chicago may be the greatest tourist destination in the United States during the better months. So let's maybe put it between May and November. I don't think you should come and hang out here in February and March so much. It's got its issues. 
Chicago is a bit of a misunderstood city for people who do not come here, but it is such a glorious blend of nature, culture, food, community, interculturalism, multiculturalism, one of the most multicultural cities on the planet. The thing that we really lack is topography. We are flat as a pancake, which is unfortunate. I'm actually a California boy, so I do miss mountains. But in terms of the ocean, even, uh, Lake Michigan is not quite an ocean, but for those who have never seen it before, they show up and it behaves like an ocean and it looks like an ocean in every way other than the massive waves other than during winter. But Chicago is really such a glorious place to be. And uh, I, I recommend you check it out. And it's central. Everybody always thinks of the coasts when they come to visit. And there's this flyover country in the middle of the United States. And Chicago is awfully beautiful flyover country. So highly recommend it. Oh, I love it. And I just remember Chicago pizzas. Like that's the advert that always comes on. Are you thinking deep dish though, Patty? Yeah, those deep. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to let you in on a little thing. So two things I will let you in on. Number one, when everybody calls Chicago the Windy City, the Windy has nothing to do with our weather. We are actually not even in the top 75 Windy Cities in America. The Windy has to do with our politicians back at the turn of the last century and all of the hot air, all the wind that they were blowing around. Chicago has always been such a political place. That's where the Windy City came from and, and what it actually means. But the other misnomer is the deep dish pizza thing, because deep dish is primarily here for tourists. It became very popular in the 1930s and 1940s, and it remains popular today. But I will be one of those Chicagoans that goes on record to say it is not pizza. It is casserole. It is a, a, a it's a lasagna baked into a crust in a lot of ways. It's delicious, but we are actually a thin crust pizza city. So if you go to the right places, you're going to get phenomenal pizza here, but it won't be the deep dish stuff, which is tasty. But if you want a pizza, that ain't it. Oh, got it. Hopefully not with pineapple on top. Oh, here we go with the pineapple. All right. No, you, and look, I'll tell you, if you ever try to put pineapple into a deep dish pizza, you're going to lose everybody in the room. I promise you. So just don't do it. Got it. There we go, folks. Now you've been told. <laughs> now let's get to something actually meaningful. Let's talk about some good stuff. Now. Well, I was looking at the bookshelf behind you and you've got like lots of books. <laughs> I'm always intrigued to understand the sort of things that my guests read. There's certainly some orange books at the top there. They look like they're part of a set. So, yeah, could you share just maybe a, a few of those titles and your, your kind of uh, taste in reading? Well, that top shelf back up there, that is my guru. Those are all Rick Steves books. And I'm, I'm a huge fan of Rick Steves. For those of your listeners who do not know who Rick Steves is, he is a remarkable travel guru who started leading tours when he was in college, spent a lot of time in Europe, especially with his parents back when he was young. Then by the time he reached college in the 1970s, he found that he was very good at leading tours. And his first book was a book called Europe Through the Back Door. And the concept was, for Americans in particular, A, get out and travel. Stop looking at your borders as saying, well, we have everything here. Why would we bother going overseas? Don't worry about the language barrier. Don't worry about the money difference, especially at a time when European currencies were all over the map and you had to know them all. I had to understand that 1600 lira was a dollar and the like. And what was a pound actually worth? Two dollars? I don't quite understand. And he began to write books that said, this is the travel that you actually want to do. Lonely Planet Guide, fantastic, but you're going to get a thousand pages and you'll have no idea how to break it down and decide what matters and what doesn't. Instead, here's 200 pages on that country that gets you right to the travel that you've always dreamed of. And I started reading his books as a, a late teenager in my early 20s before I could travel. And I said, that's how I want to travel. And since then, he has become 
bit of a god to me over the years in what he does, but he really does help people have phenomenal travels. And I use his guidebooks uh, all the time, even to this day, even after a great deal of travel myself. So that's those up there. The orange ones are my book, uh, the ones that are next to it below. And pretty much everything else that you see there is all about the power of phenomenal corporate storytelling from a number of different perspectives from the financial perspective, from the corporate growth and scaling perspective, from the marketing and advertising perspective. I'm so passionate about corporate storytelling and how we can tell better stories about our brands that I read about it constantly. And that's what you see. Oh, amazing. I love that. I, I hope there's a, a travel book there about Birmingham. Birmingham is going to be included. I, let's see. So England is, oh, England is up on top. It's horizontal as opposed to vertical because I was actually in London about uh, three weeks ago which is not Birmingham, by the way, for those of you who are thinking it is, they're different cities. But I was there a few weeks ago representing Fujifilm on a uh, great project that they were doing. So I pulled out my London and I've been to London many times, but I always bring a bit of Rick with me to explore or discover something new or remind myself of something that I loved last time. There we go. Thank you, Rick. Thank you, Rick. There's <laughs> my Rick pitch. He'll likely never see or hear this. I don't know if he's a, a subscriber to you, but if he ever does... Thank you, Rick, for everything you do for the world. I'll second that. Thanks, Rick. Uh, keep listening, though. Right. Okay. So, Steve, let's talk about this superpower you mentioned about humanizing corporates and how they can connect better with their audience. I'm going to let you start anywhere with this that you like, and then we'll delve deeper into that because I don't know where we start. Let's start. At the basic, a lot of people see this corporate storytelling concept and they say, well, what actually is that? What is corporate storytelling? What do you mean? So let's just unpack that very quickly and easily. What corporate storytelling means fundamentally, and you'll see a lot of different definitions of it. A lot of them are very convoluted and very corporate speak in and of themselves. But what it basically means is combining the details of your topic, whatever that topic may be with personal experiences that your audience can relate to that they can find value in and that they themselves can become passionate about. If you can put together what you do with why you do it and why you believe others should be excited about doing it as well, you tell a much more compelling story than you do by simply talking about the data, the metrics, the details, the statistics, the provability of your capability itself, right? So that's kind of the fundamental concept of it. So this came from a phenomenal concept that was developed about 140, 130, 140 years ago by a company called uh, John Deere. And for those of your listeners in the US, they will absolutely know what John Deere is for your other listeners around the world. In case you don't, John Deere and company has been the most popular and powerful North American farm equipment provider since the 1850s. They have a huge history. Long after Deere himself had already passed away, the people running Deere and company realized in the 1890s that they were losing a bit of their edge within the industry. And it's because they were so busy pitching products that they forgot about who was actually buying those products. They were just trying to make money. And they started to realize that's not going to sustain us over time. We won't stay in the lead if we do that. So they came up with a concept. They published a magazine called The Furrow in 1895. And what The Furrow did was what was then at the time coined or invented as content marketing, the content being the important part, instead of product marketing, it was content marketing. So instead of saying you need to buy our tractors, our hose, our rakes, because 
they are the best, they're the strongest, they're the most valuable. Instead, what they did is they said, let's talk one-on-one about life on the land. What do you experience on a daily basis? What is farming like around the globe today? What challenges are you up against? What hindrances are you trying to deal with? How do you sell your product? How do you market your product properly by speaking to people about the value you create? That was content marketing in 1895, and it was a brand new concept. Now we flash forward over time, and by the 1980s, we start to develop content marketing and transition it into corporate storytelling, which is don't just talk product all the time. You have to talk to people. And this is all based on a hierarchy of how humans process information. So should we go there next? Is that a good logical spot? Yeah, for sure. Because I mean, stories play a really important role in us passing knowledge through different generations. And to see storytelling now being brought into the business world is quite fascinating. So yeah, let's explore that. All right. So if we go to science, just as a fundamental baseline, We have to understand how the human brain works in order to market to our fellow humans, in order to sell to our fellow humans. So whatever the size of your brand, your organization, whatever your focus is within the technology sphere or the healthcare sphere or the aerospace and engineering sphere or the print and graphics sphere, we're always trying to think about how do we get people to connect with what it is that we are trying to offer to them. And we have to think of it as offering because ultimately sales and marketing is a service profession. We always think of it as strictly economic. It's baseline. It is proving quarter over quarter earnings. It's proving scalability of our brand to our shareholders. But I always like to recommend to the brands I work with, we have to pull that back. We have to think of this as how are we serving others? It's almost like faith, whether you're a faith-based person or not. But the idea is how can you be in service of other people? Because when we do that, Now we create value for them. They will end up serving us as well, but we have to serve them first. We have to create value for them first. And as you just said correctly, Patty, orality, the idea of sharing stories around the campfire or around the dinner table with one another, despite all of our gains in technology and the ability to communicate in other ways, social media, television, film, whatever it happens to be, to this day, on all seven continents, nothing beats orality. The idea of two people speaking with one another and sharing what they know through stories. It's still the most valuable concept. And the reason now goes to that psychological science of how humans process information. I call it the hierarchy of content flow. And what it basically means is you have to get through three levels to get to a sale or to get to a successful marketing pitch. And most companies flip those upside down. They market to number three then two, then one, instead of one, then two, then three. Number one is human first. Before we do anything else, we have to speak to a fellow human. And this is whether it's you and I having a one-on-one conversation, or if I'm standing on a, in a room with 25 of my colleagues and leadership, or I'm standing on a stage in front of a thousand people delivering a keynote or offering a session. I have to speak to them as people first, humans first. They have to understand who I am. They have to see a parallel with me where they say, this guy knows me. He understands me. I like him. I, I, I think I can listen to what he has to say. I think he is here for my benefit and to prove value to me. And so now that I approve of this person, I'm ready to invest in this person time or money or whatever it happens to be, invest my interest. 
And that's number two. We have to speak to people second as consumers. And I always say consumer, not in terms of, hi, I want to buy something from you, but hi, I would like to invest my energies in you. I am ready to set the rest of the world aside, all these other distractions, and invest in what you have to say, because I see value for myself in you. And I would love to hear more from you. We invest in them consumers second. And then third, we speak to them as employees, meaning as a corporation, as somebody who might buy something from us, sign a contract. So human first, consumer second, employee third. That is how we tell a successful market messaging story to our audience. And like I said, what most companies do, they reverse it. They speak to the corporation first, then they speak to the consumer second, please buy it. And the human comes last or maybe is completely left off that hierarchy. And it's why about 98.5% of all marketing and messaging fails to connect and fails to deliver. So that is a very long way of talking about how corporate storytelling works on a psychological and scientific basis. Talk to a person, then get them to invest in you. Then it's time for you to make your pitch. If you go in that order, you're going to see your sales success, your marketing, your message communication success spike, and you're going to see it immediately. And you mentioned John Deere as an organization, and it is one that I've come across just based on my own reading. And they're doing some really cutting edge stuff at the moment, I believe, with AI and you know technology being able to really help with predicting weather and conditions for farming. But what are some of the examples that the likes of John Deere have been successful with? So in terms of their storytelling or other organizations that you've worked with, could you give us some examples of how they've changed their messaging to really then connect with the human? Absolutely. I'm glad that you brought up AI. <laughs> for, for those who track it in the tech news, NVIDIA just became the third most uh, powerful brand based on its AI technology, which is pretty remarkable that it drove markets around the world because of it. The most logical, obvious, and well-known brand that has been hugely successful in corporate storytelling is Apple. And I feel like everybody talks Apple all the time. We could talk McDonald's, we could talk Nike, we could talk Coca-Cola. There are so many enormous brands that have done a phenomenal job of really leveraging the power of corporate storytelling with modern technology in order to create incredible success. But let's go with Apple, since everybody knows the brand. And I'll give you a couple of examples. I worked with Apple for a number of years. And if you've ever attended an Apple event, especially an Apple launch event, Apple is remarkable. They will have a slate of speakers speaking to their culture and their ecosystem. And no matter who you are or what your job title is, you have two minutes to tell your story. And then the hook comes out. You've got to get the hell off the stage. So the idea of the CEO of Tim Cook or whoever it is standing up in front of everybody and going on and on for a 15, 20, 45 minute, 60 minute keynote address, Apple eliminated that long ago because they understand human psychology and they realize that humans want to get to the point, get to the value, get excited and move on. So even Tim gets two minutes to speak and he's gone. And then the next executive comes up and they get two. And then the next executive comes up and they get two. They understand how to communicate with people in order to move a technological product. We can also go to their advertising. So here in the US, I don't know if you see it quite as much in the UK, Patty, but here in the US, you'll drive around and you'll see enormous billboards that have a photo on. 
and it'll say taken with an iPhone. And then they, what they don't do on that billboard is give you all the details and the specs and the proof points of that iPhone. What they say is photo taken by Patty Donda. And they make you the star of their story. They highlight the consumer. They highlight the user. You want to be on the next billboard is the psychological step. All you have to do, buy this thing. As I throw it around the room, buy this thing and learn how to use it. And you too can get on the billboard. It's also the idea of what I call painting the picture. So successful corporate storytelling doesn't say, I have this remarkable product. And let me tell you all of the spec details behind this product. I want to tell you the processing speed. I want to tell you the connection. I want to tell you the length of time to charge to full. I want it. No, here's what we're going to do. Look at this beautiful streamlined, no button form that allows you to communicate with anybody in the world on your own terms. You hold the power of corporations in your hand right now, and it is completely and fully interactive and connectable to any device in your world or in anybody else's world. Doesn't that sound fantastic? Wouldn't you love to be a part of that? Well, guess what? We sell you one of these. That's the storytelling angle of corporations. Now, a lot of people will say, yeah, but I'm not Apple. I don't have that kind of money. I don't have that kind of a reach. I sell rubber gloves. How am I supposed to compete with that? What I always say is fine. Don't talk about the technology of your rubber gloves. Don't talk to me about its tensile strength. Don't talk to me about the technologies that were used to build that glove. Don't talk to me even about the difference in sales price, about how yours are cheaper or you sell or, or you can deliver them faster. Your audience doesn't care. You know what they care about? What does your glove do for me that is different from what every other glove does for me? And if you don't know, it means you don't know your brand. You don't know your product. You don't understand your passion for that glove. Start to think in terms, not of how do I sell more gloves, but what does a glove mean to the school nurse? So when my young child is sick and they go to that nurse is able to treat and take care of my child. What does that rubber glove mean to the ICU doctor that when somebody comes in from a car crash that allows them to save that person's life or that allows a mother in the neonatal intensive care unit to have physical contact with her preborn child. The right glove is the difference between life and death. The right glove creates, sustains, builds lives. That's why I sell rubber gloves. Now, if I can get you interested in the glove first, I have to make it personal to you. We can do this with any product. We can do this with a breakfast cereal. We can do this with a loaf of bread. We can do this with an automobile. Great corporate storytelling allows you to convert your technology into a human first story. And if you haven't figured out how to do it yet, I promise for all of your listeners, it is the fastest way to create more connection to your marketplace, create more differentiation and drive and motivate contracts and sales. Thank you. That was fascinating. I was a bit of a lecture there. I apologize. I've been speaking far too no. long. I, as you see, I'm very passionate about no, this. No, I stuff. love it. I think you were in full flow and I was eagerly listening and digesting. <laughs> so you talk for a while now. I mean, let me turn the same question back on you, right? So we were talking before about marketing your own brand, about what it is that you do and, and where your passions are. And I was telling you, I love what it is that you're passionate about, Patty, but how do you create that story for your listeners that makes you compelling and makes them want to listen to what it is that you are bringing to them, delivering value to them? It's a really good question. And I've been thinking about this recently around when people do ask me about the podcast, they'll say like, well, what is it you talk about? What is the podcast theme? And in the past, I've just said, oh, it's about human skills for the future. 
but it doesn't really resonate, I don't think, with people because that's quite a generic term and I've probably not connected with their emotion. And so what I was starting mm. to think about now was, are you suffering from AI anxiety, right? Yeah. Because I think a lot of us are. And are you concerned about future-proofing your career? Because I think a lot of us are having that concern. So that was kind of the emotional connection I was thinking about. And then talk about, well, why not listen to the podcast? Because I talk to passionate thought leaders who inspire us about some of the human skills that we can build for the future. So that was the kind of angle I was coming at it from. Now you're the expert, Steve. I would love your thoughts on how could I tweak that message? Is that message even one that I should be going with, do you think? Or like, what are your thoughts? I think that is a perfect message and it's prescient. It's time sensitive. We are living in this space where I don't know anybody in any professional sphere that isn't thinking, how is AI going to impact what it is that I do and what it is that I care about? I think we have this golden opportunity. So I, my, my longest term client and where most people know me from on a public space is Cisco. I do a huge amount of work with Cisco. I've been speaking on their behalf now for about 27 years and uh, I'm out there storytelling about Cisco every week. And AI, of course, being an enormous part of every capability that Cisco offers, it is touching into everything from their collaboration stance to their security stance, to their networking stance, to their data center stance. And what we always talk about is AI as an opportunity and AI as a limited scope feature that is still highly dependent on humans. And in my view, always will be. So anybody who is concerned about what AI will do to them, we have to start to shift the conversation to what AI will do for them and how they can adapt within their own world to the AI potential. People are using AI in remarkable ways, but the limitation of AI is and always will be, it has to start with a human being. So what do you do within your job realm, within your corporation, within the way you market to your sector? where AI can be a benefit to you instead of a hindrance to you. And this is not an easy answer. We can't just snap a finger and say, well, do this instead of this. doesn't quite work that way. What it does is it says you have to be agile. You have to not only research, but pay very close attention to how AI is creeping in on your world and say, okay, how do I turn that to my benefit? How do I maintain the power over the AI instead of simply fearing it and allowing the AI to eventually create power over me? And I think as you continue to develop your core message, that's the focus you want to take is let's start to see AI as a value instead of as something to be terrified about, instead of something misunderstood. It's happening so quickly. And the other thing is you're in a very big pool. Everybody that we talk to about AI, we have to keep reminding them this is still new. I know we like to think it's been around for, for 40 years, and it has. But in its current capacity, it's been around for less than four years. And part of that came out of the pandemic as well. So we still have a lot to learn, and we still have a lot of control. How do we exercise that control? And in a lot of ways, I think this is what you are doing for your listeners. You're trying to say, okay, let's look at the realities on the ground, and what can you do with it instead of what can you do to fight it? Does that all make sense? Yeah, 100%. I mean, I'm definitely not of the opinion that we should be fighting against it because it's here, it's now, and it's only going to get bigger. And 
I, I see so many valuable uses for it. I mean, I use it on a daily basis. I was talking to my good friend Grant the other day and he said, Paddy, I seem to go to chat GPT like quite often for all sorts of things on a daily basis and it's becoming like a, a regular habit. And I was saying, do you not feel it's making you lazy? Because I, I sometimes feel that, right? Like if someone at work has asked me a question about, oh, what do you reckon we should do here? Or, you know, do we have a template for this? And I'll quickly knock one up with chat GPT. And then obviously we have that human intervention then to say, well, does that look sensible? Should I tweak it or whatnot? But it's a good starting point and it does save me a lot of time and brain cells, I think, at times. Absolutely. It's all good. It, it, we can, by the way, we can parallel this back over so many technologies. Google Maps, right? GPS systems. They made us lazy. We used to actually know all the streets in our city. We used to know where the addresses were and where the businesses were. And when we traveled, we had little flip books that we brought. Well, I'm old enough to remember this, that I would travel across the United States or I would drive through Europe and I'd have these maps that I would follow. And along comes this fantastic technology. We start to utilize it and leverage it. And at first we think, Ugh, I'm not going to know where anything is any longer. Well, and guess what? We embrace it. We learn to use it. It doesn't run our lives. It benefits us in different ways. Digital telephones did the same thing. We used to have to know someone's number in order to stick our finger in a hole and dial that number. We had all of our numbers memorized when I was a kid. I was born in the 60s. We didn't have any of these other technologies. And then what happens? We get these little buttons on our phone that just are speed dials, and we no longer know anybody's number. Same thing happens today. It's not that it ends the way that we used to do things. It's that it transitions them and empowers us in new ways. If we even look into film, right, we look at what Disney has been able to create. There was a period of time not long ago in the 1990s where Disney went to fully digitally produced animation. Sorry, the 1980s. And The Little Mermaid was the first fully digitally animated film that Disney released in 1987, I believe. And everybody said, well, that's it. That's the death of animation. We'll never need hand animators anymore to go and sit down and utilize their incredible skills to draw these beautiful images. And you know what happened? People said, that's a fabulous movie. It's delightful. But I miss the look of the hand-drawn. And by Beauty and the Beast, they had gone back to hand-drawn animation. That was an early form, not of AI, but of digitization. And we're in a fully digitized world at this point. Everybody's transitioning to the cloud and uh, digitizing their organizations. But the demand for human skill remains. And that is why to this day, you've got AI creating animated films, but at the same time, go to the gaming companies, go to the major animated film companies, and they all still have a ton of humans working for them, creating beautiful images. It's not an either or, it's an and plus. And this is how we think of AI in the intelligent methodology. If we take it to the tech sphere, as I said, I've spent a lot of time uh, with Cisco uh, about a week and a half ago. We were in Amsterdam for Cisco Live, EMEA. And uh, a lot of what we we're talking about is full stack observability as organizations onboard more and more applications. The problem is these applications don't know how to speak to one another. There's not a network backbone for those apps to run on that allow them to be consistent in their communication with one another. So all of a sudden the IT person has to know every security protocol of every app. They need to know which app they can run at which time so it won't compete with another app. They have to worry about which app is going to go down. And when they have a breach, they don't know where that security breach has taken place because they've got a hundred different apps that they have to cover. Well, all of a sudden AI comes in to FSO to full stack observability. And now they can see into every one of the apps and get all those apps to speak with one another. 
So when a security breach rolls in the door, they know how to get right to it and mediate that risk. Their mean time to resolution drops from days to seconds. That is the power of AI. Does that diminish human knowledge? No, we still need the human to go in and mediate that risk. But the AI provides remarkable benefit in this digitized world for that particular technology and keeps organizations humming and serving their clients. Again, it's the human side of the technology and the AI can be a phenomenal bridge. It's all in how we tell the story in a way that becomes meaningful for the listener. Which is a great segue into my next question, because as you were talking that through, I was thinking about not only has technology changed massively and rapidly, but we as humans have had to also evolve pretty quickly. And you mentioned there about Google Maps and having this technology doing a lot of the hard work for us. So we have also evolved and adapted. So based on the fact that humans have changed, how has the messaging changed, especially when we're doing storytelling? Has it always stayed the same since John Deere was mm. around in the 1950s? Or because humans are now evolving and we're starting to change, like our attention spans are shrinking and all of these other good things, how has the storyteller had to change the way they connect with people? Oh, Mr. Danda, you ask a, a, a brilliant and a very important question with that. It's changed dramatically. But the reason that it's changed dramatically is not that humans themselves have changed. It's the world that we have built has become so much harder to break through. There was a terrific study that was done by the uh, Consumer Insights team at Microsoft Canada back in 2015 called the Statistic Brain. And this particular study, it, I wouldn't say it was a turning point, but it certainly commented on a turning point. What it found was that humans, despite the joke that might come along with it, we genuinely do have a shorter attention span than the average goldfish, <laughs> which sounds funny, like we're making a statement that is just meant to get a laugh. Unfortunately, it's true. The science itself is a bit disputed in how they got to it, but peer-reviewed journals, what they were doing was they were suggesting that there's a decline in attention. So human will generally lose concentration after roughly eight seconds. Eight seconds is the amount of time we have to make our message stick. Now, it doesn't mean we should only speak for eight seconds and then shut up. It means that every eight seconds, we have to do something to re-grab that audience's attention. There are a lot of ways that we can do it. You'll notice one of the things that I do, I speak very quickly and then I take a pause and then I re-energize my next part of my statement so that if I, when I speak too long, which I've been doing a lot during our time together today, I know the audience is out there losing attention and that's my bad because I'm not mixing things up enough for them. But if I know every eight seconds, I have to re-grab them. That's number one, but we can get a little bit more optimistic than that. What they found in the statistic brain study was that the average student at university, their attention span declined roughly 10 to 15 minutes into a lecture. There is a science behind that. So if you're a fan of TED Talks, which I'm sure everybody on your, who is listening to your program is, TED Talks are very specific. If you go back and line up every TED Talk you've ever watched, you've probably never paid attention to how long that TED Talk is. But TED Talks run between nine minutes and 18 minutes. Nine minutes on the ground side, 18 minutes on the extended side. And the reason is humans cannot concentrate longer than that. And the TED organization is more than smart enough to know beyond 18 minutes, we'll lose value. 
The more you say, the less you say, and the less your audience will hear, retain, understand, and care about. So what a real TED talk is that runs 18 minutes. Again, if you go back and watch your favorite, it's actually two different TED talks put together. Sounds like one topic and one talk, but you're hearing two approaches or two different methods of getting to the same concept of the talk because they understand that is the way the human brain works. So now if we back all that up to your original question, which is, have we changed? Yes. We've changed based on, in we are inundated with messaging in this smaller global world, more connected global world that we all live in. We simply can't concentrate anymore. We're being bombarded by too much stimuli, too much input. So then if we think about it from a sales strategy or a de uh, content development or a technology development strategy, there are three things that we have to do for our audience in order to break through the noise and get back to the 1895 John Deere ability to just hear a story, let it wash over us and see value in it. So the three things that we can do for our audience, number one, create differentiation right out of the gate. What am I going to talk to you about or what am I going to show you that is different from the way you're doing things right now? So that by the time you walk away from our conversation, you've got something new that you can put into action, right? That's actually going to be number three. So number one, create differentiation for your audience. Number two, clear an obstacle from their path. I know you, I understand you, and I know what's blocking you from getting where you want to be. Allow me to get that thing out of your way. And sometimes the obstacle is a gigantic boulder sitting in front of us that we can't walk around. Sometimes it's an annoying pebble in our shoe. It just hurts. We don't like it. Well, let me be that person who takes the pebble out of your shoe. Let me do that for you. I would love to do that for you. So number two, clear an obstacle from their path. And number three, motivate them to take action because the best engagement always results in somebody doing something different than they did today. If I am selling you toilet paper, if I do my job right, the next time you go to the store, you will buy my brand of toilet paper. It will result in an action. If I have built a new piece of tech, a new software, if I can get you to go and research my software to see if it's really right for you, I have engaged you enough to let you say, I want to go check that out. Let me go research that software a little bit. So if I can do one of those three things, create differentiation, clear an obstacle for your path or motivate you to take action. Now you have the value you need to make your life better professionally, personally, or both. That's a successful engagement. And that's how we cut through. That's how humans have changed. We have to give them one of those things today or they'll never hear the rest of our message. As you were talking that through, you triggered a thought in my mind about toilet paper. In the UK, it was many years ago, but there's a company called Andrex and they make toilet paper. And I can't remember the messaging, but what I do remember is they used to have these cute little dogs on the advert. Okay. And it just became a phrase. Whenever you'd see one of those dogs, you'd be like, oh, that's the dog out of the Andrex advert. And most people wouldn't even know the breed of the dog. They were Labradors, but most people would go, oh yeah, they're the Andrex dogs. I just connected with that for a moment because of this human aspect we're talking about. Let me ask you though, on that, Patty, so it's a great point, but let me ask you, put yourself in the mindset of either the advertising firm or the person at that company that first made the leap between toilet paper and Labrador retrievers. If we think about that in a vacuum, it's ridiculous, yeah. right? It's absolutely ludicrous. There's no connection between them. So let's put ourselves in those mindsets, in the mindset of them. 
I'm out there trying to sell toilet paper and somebody comes to me and says, I've got it. We're going to use dogs to sell our toilet paper. Imagine that pitch session. Imagine that CMO of that organization. Imagine that advertising firm who first brought it to the executive leadership of Andrex. What would the reaction have been and how would they have seen the, the storytelling that made sense? Well, you're not talking about the strength of the toilet paper. You're not talking about the price of the toilet paper. You're not talking about how soft it is. You're not talking about how any consumer in any household can afford it. Dogs explain corporate storytelling, right? Yeah. So I don't know. What do you think the connection was? Do you know, I can't even remember anymore. I'd have to go back and check it. But I think it was something around the softness of the, the paper on the dogs. And yeah, sure. it just gave you that feeling of it being quite cute, fluffy, and friendly, I think, maybe. Let me give you an interesting parallel. So I don't know if you get them in the UK, but here in the US, one of the, I think maybe the top selling, I'm not going to go out on a limb and say that, but one of the top selling dish detergents that we use in the sink to clean our plates and our glasses is a company called Dawn. And Dawn has a couple of different catchphrases. Their big one is Dawn gets grease out of your way, right? It's about the dishes and washing the dishes. But I can't remember what year it was, probably the late eighties or early nineties there was an oil tanker spill in the Gulf of Valdez in Alaska. And what the people in the area trying to clean up this massive oil spill did was they used Dawn to get the grease off of birds in the area in Alaska that had been soaked in oil and were going to die. So they were trying to rescue any of these birds that were slicked and covered in oil and they were using Dawn to get that off. Well, my gosh, if that's not the greatest marketing in the world, and all of a sudden for years now... We have seen Dawn being used on animals to protect them against human incursion and natural disasters. And I'm guessing that has sold a great deal more Dawn because they took this product and instead of just talking about it will make your dishes cleaner, which every dish soap says, it will make it faster. We sell it cheaper. All of these things that we hear as a pitch from every other dish soap manufacturer now we've humanized the story. We've made it personal. We've touched on emotion in order to sell the product. That story will go miles farther than any statistic about the benefits of utilizing Dawn liquid over any other dishwashing liquid. Tell the human story first, and then you can get them to invest as consumers. And then eventually you can tell the corporate story. Oh, what a great example. I love that. Can I give you a failed one as well? Oh yeah, go for it. All right. I just thought of this as well. So last year or two years ago, I can't remember. So Tesla in many ways builds what is scientifically provable as maybe the safest passenger car that's ever been built. And a lot of it has to do with the weight. EVs are extremely heavy. They're about 150% the weight of the average ICE internal combustion engine vehicle of the same size, which means that it's almost impossible to flip a Tesla. People have tried, they bring it up to high speeds and they crank the wheel and that car just won't flip over because it's so bottom heavy. It wants to land back on its wheels. Straight science, right? About some time ago, I can't remember, a man was with his wife and his two very young children in the back seat in their car seats. And he drove a Tesla off a cliff in California. And that Tesla flew 200 feet down and smashed on the rocks below landed upright on its wheels. All of the glass was smashed out of the car, but the dad, the mom, and the two kids were still in their car seats, all perfectly fine. They had to be airlifted out by helicopter 
because they were down on the water level, but everybody was perfectly fine. And when this story first came out, we thought that is going to be the single greatest advertisement that Tesla could ever put out in order to sell their cars. Look at how incredibly safe we keep your family. Then it turns out the guy was trying to kill his family. He drove off the cliff deliberately to kill himself along with his wife and their children. And all of a sudden, Tesla's marketing and ad campaign concept flew right out the window. Well, I guess we can't use that anymore, can we? But again, how beautiful would it have been if that story could have been used? Now, I will give you another one that was successful. So Stanley Thermoses, okay, I just happened to own one. It's sitting right up here on my desk. Not that long ago, about three, four months ago, a woman was driving, I can't remember where, here in the U.S., and her car caught on fire and burned to a crisp. She was fine. And when they went in, the Stanley mug of water that she had in her car was perfect. And the water inside still had all of its ice cubes in it, and the water was still perfectly cold and protected. Phenomenal sales and marketing for Stanley to tell a human customer story, right? So there are a lot of methods where you can go to the corporate storytelling over the statistics of the product. If Stanley is going to compete with all of the other major manufacturers in the world, Thermos and Corksicle and everybody else who makes a, a vacuum sealed thermos, the consumer is going to get confused. Everybody says their product is the best. They all look about the same. They all cost about the same. They all create the same benefit. I'll just go with the one that I know. I'll buy based on emotion. The statistic is going to work for me, but the emotion will. Tell the better story. You differentiate your product, you clear the obstacle from their path, and you motivate them to take action and go and buy what it is that you're hoping to sell. So when COVID hit, a good friend of mine, Grant, and I, we set up a community for visual thinkers. So people that like to use visuals in their communication, collaboration, and in the world of work. And we initially thought it would just be a few local people that might join the community, but then everything went virtual. And the last count, I think we had, actually, I've got it here. We've got 2,892 members and it's just blown up, right? And it's global and it's just crazy how all these people around the world, they have found us and now they're part of this amazing community. Absolutely love it. But the story that sticks in my mind was when COVID kicked in, about four or five months later, after we had done about four or five events, because we, we run a free event every month, at the end of this one session, this one lady, she stopped us and she said, hey, guys, can I just share my story? And we were like, yeah, go for it. And she said, because of COVID, I was made redundant and I didn't have a job. And she said, I've been coming to the Visual Jam, which is the community that we put together. And she said, it's reinvigorated my passion for drawing. And I've learned these new skills and it's really kind of helped me escape from those daily pressures, which was great. And we were super happy about that. But then she got emotional and she said, and because I'm out of work, I've really struggled but recently I had a job interview and they had asked me to prepare a presentation and she decided to experiment by hand drawing some of the visuals for the presentation. Oh. And she said, literally within the first few minutes, the hiring manager just turned around and said, you're hired. 
without her even finishing the interview. Create differentiation. Right. And it, and she was like explaining this story and I had tears in my eyes. I was filling up because she was so complimentary about the visual jam and she was saying, there's no way I would have got this job had I not been following the community and the great value that some of the speakers had given to her. But it was such an amazing story because we never started the visual jam for those reasons. We didn't know what kind of impact it would have on people. And then when you hear about some of these accidental stories from people that are getting value, it becomes super powerful. And that kind of reminded me of that story when you talked about this lady, she's had this crazy situation, her car's gone on fire, but yet that Stanley product has survived. And what a great story. So yeah, sometimes these accidents can create some uh, really memorable and powerful stories, can't they? Absolutely. You're so right. There's an old adage that you should never chase a dollar. Do what you love, do what you care about, and the dollar will chase you, right? So you and Grant, you put together this concept based on something that you both not only care about deeply, but that you connect with, right? You consider yourself a visual learner. Grant does as well. You create visual jam and you don't do it in order to make money. You do it to bring a community together and provide value for others, allow others to tell their stories, share their stories, and come together around a shared passion, something that they care about. And next thing you know, that shared passion starts to generate value and success in other methodologies. This is how humans operate. Nobody likes to be pitched. There's nobody in the world who loves to be pitched. Who says, yeah, great, pitch me. I guess if you're an investor, if that's what you do is you do investment capital and you're like, great, pitch me on your product and I'll decide whether or not I want to invest in it. It's that's a very rare person. Most of us walking around through our days, we're getting pitched constantly. Everybody buy this, buy that, sell me. We don't like it. Talk to me like a fellow person. Talk to me like an individual. Let's share what we have in common with one another, what we both care about. The value will come out of that and eventually the sale will come out of that. In this particular case, thanks to the two of you, putting visual jam out there. This woman joins the, joins the ecosystem, becomes a part of what it is that you care about deeply, and it ends up propelling her to a career. I can't imagine anything making you and Grant feel better. That's why you did this. You didn't do it to earn money, but the success, the following comes with follow with, with telling your most honest story. Hardest thing in the world for people to do because they're too busy pitching what it is that they sell because they have to meet their bottom line and pay their bills. So bravo. I love what you did. And I, I, th I think it's so cool that she did that. All of a sudden I want to see one of her presentations so I can see her hand drawn PowerPoint slides. Yeah, no, I wish we had actually taken a picture of that presentation, but it, we were so emotional at the time. It was just one of those moments that we failed to think about. And we had another example recently where somebody applied for a job. And, and again, similarly, they had created all their own visuals by hand and she had come to a workshop that we had run. And again, total surprise. You know, we didn't know she was going to use these skills immediately, but she managed to land the job, which is great. It's so good hearing these sort of concepts because I, I think many times when you're working for a company or you're trying to get your business off the ground, you don't see the obvious in front of you. Because when you talk about mm. it, it's, it sounds like it's common sense, right? Like, you know, that's the way I would want to be <laughs> engaged. I wouldn't want someone coming up and telling me all the features on this product. And then at the end of it saying, come and buy me, right? It's like, just 
get me to care about this thing, and then we'll talk about the sale after. It's human story. And by the way, let me allow me to build on what, again, what Visual Jam is. There is a, there's a concept that was come up years ago by, oh, I'm trying to remember the name of the scientist now. Well, if you've ever read Edgar Dale's Cone of Experience, this is a very old book. <clears throat> this is 1946 that the Cone of Experience was released. But it was the idea that the least effective method of message retention is one-way learning presented through verbal symbols, words, listening to spoken words. So a lecturer, a professor stands in front of a group of students and talks at them for an hour. That is technically the least effective method of transitioning or transferring information from one person to another. The most effective method of message retention involves experiential learning, action learning. I want to tell you about something and I want to help you stand up and do it. Put it into action, right? The other great way is, as we always hear, the best way to learn something yourself is to teach it to other people. Because again, it's action-based. Allow me to explain what I know to you in hopes of creating value for you in some way. Because we incorporate and we gain so much more value from what we do as opposed to the things that we hear or read or observe, right? So if we think about those things together... And you think about it now in terms of marketing your product, marketing your technology, selling your technology, getting others to get excited about what it is that you have created within a tech space. The best way to do it, let me put this into your hands and let me help you figure out exactly how to use it so you can start to see the benefits for yourself. This is what you and Grant put together with Visual Jam is let's show you how to maximize on the visual learning that you already are best at. How can we empower you to now put it to the best possible use for you as an individual? That is what's going to stick. And we never think about that in terms of marketing. We just pitch a product. If we can pull it back to that level of helping another human being to learn by doing, get them to take action, we're going to be far more successful. Talking about taking action, Steve, yes. I'm going to ask you one of my favorite questions that I pose now to virtually every guest. If I could give you any superpower in the world to abolish something in the world of work for 24 hours, because we got a pilot, what would that be? Oh, all right. If I could abolish meaningless corporate speak for 24 hours, I would love to do that. I would love to abolish the way companies communicate or attempt to communicate through techno babble and useless corporate information, I would take it away and say, nope, from now on for the next 24 hours, you just have to talk to everybody like they're a fellow traveler and an equal human being to you and like somebody that you actually care about. How's that for something to abolish? Corporate speak, gone, out, useless. I love that. I mean, there's certain phrases, right, that we say in meetings that really wind me up. It's like if someone will say, oh, Let's just everyone get on the same page. And th there's these generic terms that we, we seem to use, and they're very corporate kind of things. That's not something you would say to your kids, right, on the dinner table and go, right, everybody, let's just all get on the same page here. My wife hates up-level. I think up-level and up-leveling is her one right now. Whenever I use it, she looks at me and she says, knock it off. Just don't do that. Don't say nonsense like that, up-level. Crazy. Yeah, but, oh, corporate speak, bless it.
I guess we all do it to a degree. Acronyms. Yes. How many times do we use acronyms in actual speech? And I think, don't use an acronym. Just talk to me like I'm a person. The problem with the <laughs> acronyms is now they've caught on with texting and everything. And so now the kids are speaking in acronyms and I have no Oops. idea what Harvard means. So I've got to like look it up. SMH, yeah. Patty, SMH. Shaking my head. That's shaking my head, which you and I can both do together right, right now. I got it. <laughs> and that's a big one on social media. I got it. I got it. Yeah. Mine was the IDK one. I've seen that a few times and it's thrown me and I've had to like think about it. And then, yeah, obviously I don't know. IDK. Don't know what that means. Oh, brilliant. Well, Steve, if people want to get in touch with you and get to know more about the great work you're doing, how can they contact you? Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. I am the easiest guy in the world to find. So the name of the company is Steve Multer Corporate Storytelling. You can go to stevemulter.com or corporatestorytelling.com. Either one will get you right to me. It's quick and it's easy. I also, by the way, I have a freebie that I would love to offer to all of your listeners for anybody who is interested. I've created a very simple PDF called Five Paths to Passionate Storytelling. And it's a great e-guide that anybody can download right now. And if you do any one or as many as all five of these things, you will immediately start up-leveling, see what I did there, your, your communication skills and your ability to reach out to your audience, whoever that audience may be. So if you want to download that e-guide, go to corporatestorytelling.com slash guide. And then you're going to put in a very simple code, sold, told 23, all lowercase, all one word, sold, told 23. And then you can download that e-guide. And if you're interested, you can also sign up for my Tuesday distribution. Every Tuesday, I send out a new perspective on how you can utilize great corporate storytelling to improve your communications and your connection to other people. So feel free to check that out. I would love to have you on board. Oh, excellent, Steve. And we'll put the link in the show notes as well. Oh, thank you. Yeah, no problem. No problem. And I'll be signing up for that Tuesday newsletter as well, because I think I could do with uh, another perspective on things for sure. We all could. I read tons of them from other people because I have so much that I need to learn. Oh, brilliant. Well, Steve, it's been such a pleasure getting to know you. I've had such an amazing time. I can't believe like we've been talking for almost an hour and we wow. had never met before. So it feels like two people meeting in an airport lounge and just having a chat. And that's been fantastic. So thank you so much for being such a great guest. Very pleased. This has been delightful. It's been great to get to know and learn from you. And uh, thank you so much to all of your listeners for paying attention and sticking with us. Hopefully we've created some value for all of them. Oh, brilliant. And they've lasted an hour. That's about the threshold, I think, that we're, we're, we're allowed. <laughs> eight seconds, I think we said, right? Eight seconds or maybe eight or nine minutes. I think we I, we might have pushed that boundary a bit too Yeah. Far. I, I mean, I just mentioned Joe Rogan there. He does like two-hour podcasts and people still tune in. So I don't know what he does that, you know, he manages to get people's attention for all that time. But right. Not all Joe Rogan. <laughs> no, we're not all Joe Rogan. <laughs> but thank you again. This has been fabulous. It's the end of another episode. Thank you so much for listening please do connect with me via LinkedIn and drop me a message and let me know your favorite takeaways from the episode. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the Superpower School newsletter so that you can be notified of all future episodes. Simply visit the website www.superpowers.school. Thank you once again.